Let us pray, and then we'll get, we'll get started. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this beautiful morning, a little cooler. We thank you for the uh, little drop in temperature. We thank you for this church and how you've blessed it, how you've poured out a blessing upon blessing upon our people. I pray that you continue to provide for and protect this congregation, that you continue to cause your people to grow up in maturity, that we would all be striving forward to grow in Christ, that you would uh, compel us by your Spirit and motivate us by your Spirit. I pray now, as we study your Word, you'd give us all clarity and insight and understanding into these important matters as they relate to Scripture and how to counsel one another and what that means and what that looks like and how that relates to the world we live in and the various worldviews that we find ourselves confronting. And I pray that you'd give us just a, a sweet time in your Word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you're just visiting, if this is your first time, what we're doing is we're going through a series on biblical counseling with the aim to encouraging all of us that we have what we, what we have in Scripture is sufficient to counsel one another. And in terms of Christians counseling Christians, God has given us all that we need in order to effectively counsel one another. And this is all building up and preparatory to the, the final messages where we'll talk how, about how to counsel ourselves and how to counsel one another. And so what we've been doing for the past several weeks is demonstrating how the Scripture is sufficient for the counseling task, showing what assumptions and presuppositions underlie approaches to psychology that say we need to integrate psychology with Christianity in order to effectively counsel one another. The position that this church takes and that I take personally is that Scripture is sufficient for the counseling task and there is no necessity to using psychological, secular psychological insights in the counseling task. The integrationist model would say that it's actually necessary to do so in order to be a good counselor. And so one of the things we have to talk about in that order is the question of common grace. Because some, or I should say most integrationists, if not all of them, would say that if you rightly understand common grace, the doctrine of common grace, it would lead you to integrate psychology in Christianity. And so we need to talk about what is common grace and is that a, is that a right conclusion that follows from that premise. Okay? So that's what we're going to talk about common grace. Today, probably, we're just going to get the, the theological and biblical foundations for the doctrine of common grace. And then when I come back multiple weeks later, after you've all forgotten all of that, then we will actually talk about how that relates to the integrationist model. And so we'll do a little review back then. But I do think, at the very least, this will be a very helpful study to just understand. If you've never even heard the phrase common grace, this will help you grasp, I think, an important yet neglected doctrine in the Christian faith, one that's not taught on often. A couple of years ago when we did our COVID retreat, remember when we, we usually do a retreat away off campus, and when we were in the thick of COVID, we did a retreat here for just a day or just part of a day? That was the speaking topic. I spoke on common grace. And so some of you might remember that. For those of you who were there, this will be a refresher, but those of you who weren't, were not, I hope this is a helpful study for you. So what is common grace? Have you ever heard that phrase before? If you were there at the retreat, obviously you would have heard it, but this is, a, this is an important biblical topic that is not often discussed. What is common grace? Well, 
A really easy way to understand common grace is just to understand it as all the blessings and benefits that humankind enjoys apart from salvation. So common grace is that which all people, regardless of their spiritual state, all people enjoy in this life. Common grace includes earthly blessings that all people enjoy, but that are distinct from the spiritual blessings that only believers enjoy. When we talk about common grace, we're talking about God's kindness to all people during their time on earth, regardless of their spiritual status. And as we'll talk about, we'll talk about in more specificity of what common grace entails, but you can just kind of already start to see what we're talking about. The enjoyments of life, the pleasures of life, uh, society that is generally stable, the restraining of sin, and so on. These are the blessings of common grace that all people get to enjoy. These are the blessings that God gives all creatures, all of His creatures, all of His image bearers, regardless of their spiritual status. That is how we are to understand common grace. Here's just a, a few definitions from some well-known theologians, some trustworthy theologians, and they all are basically saying the same thing. Wayne Grudem, quote, Common grace is the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. John Frame, quote, Common grace is God's favor and gifts given to those who will not finally be saved. And then John Murray, an old theologian from last century, quote, common grace is every favor of whatever kind or degree falling short of salvation which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys from the hand of God. And so you can see the common theme in all of those definitions of that, is that these blessings and benefits are common to all of God's creatures, His image bearers, but they are not part of salvation. So at the end of the day, only Christians enjoy both common grace and redemptive grace, or common grace and saving grace, or common grace and special grace, but all other people who are, who are not born again, they enjoy only God's common grace. Okay? So that's common grace, and we're going to look at biblical texts that speak specifically to this doctrine. Now, some people call this, just so you're aware, some people prefer to refer to this doctrine as common, God's common goodness, and I just read John Frame, he's one of those people that prefer to refer to this doctrine is God's common goodness because he doesn't think it's correct biblically speaking to say that God has, that he shows grace to unbelievers because grace is in scripture always reserved as a redemptive word or redemptive concept that when God shows someone grace, it's actually a saving grace. And there's nothing common about grace, it's always a saving grace. So he prefers to say God's common goodness. And then uh, I've read another person, which I think is a helpful phrase if you want to use it. He refers to creation grace. So these are all the, the enjoyments that we receive uh, by God, from God, through the creation that all people enjoy, whether, you, whether or not you're a believer. Okay. Um, I do think it's fine to call it common grace. And here, this is why we'll, this is why, look at the next point. So what is common grace? then you have to ask, why common grace? Why do we call it grace? Well, the basic reason for why we refer to these blessings as grace is because mankind is unworthy of no good thing from their creator. We're not worthy of anything good from our God, from our creator, because of our sin. 
what do we deserve the moment that our representative Adam sinned? What do we all deserve? Not only death, that's right, not only because of Adam's sin, but also because of ours, as Paul says in Romans 5. Due to Adam's sin and due to our own sin, we deserve only death and judgment. Only death and judgment. Right? So the moment you start to ponder that and believe that reality, embrace that reality, you start to see that any pleasant thing we enjoy in this life is, in some measure, a grace because it's undeserved kindness, right? So I don't think there's anything wrong with calling it common grace. I, I, I appreciate what John Frame is saying, and if you want to call it God's common goodness, that's fine too. But I do think we want to point out that what we're saying here is the reason why we say common grace, the reason why it's been phrased this way uh, historically is because we're talking about all the benefits that we as humans enjoy even though we only deserve judgment. And it really changes your perspective once you start dwelling on this reality that what I really deserve is God's judgment. So that every pleasant thing I enjoy in this life is worthy of thanks, giving, and worship to my kind and gracious God. Right? So why common grace? That's why. Ever since Adam's sin and our own sin, we are deserving of nothing but earthly misery, death, and after this life, eternal judgment. Nevertheless, God provides for and blesses His human creatures with good things despite the fact that they are, due to our rebellion and sin, undeserving of any good thing. Okay? So that's why we say common grace. God is acting in grace towards His creatures by withholding what they do deserve, earthly misery, and giving them what they don't deserve, a measure of earthly enjoyment. And we could just walk down, we could probably spend the rest of the, the time today talking about all the various pleasures and enjoyments and good things that our Creator gives us to enjoy every single day, from the large to the small pleasures. Just the fact that you got up this morning and put on your clothes and had, were able to breathe and to walk in here and to drink coffee? Amen. amen. See, I, I, I was waiting for the amens. I was waiting for, I was waiting for a big round of amens, actually. And it's, that's why, uh, if we are doing just a study on common grace, and this is something I brought up at the retreat a couple of years ago, the doctrine of common grace is important for Christians to embrace because it moves us to be thankful for everything in our life, for every good thing in our life. I mean, there should be just a regular thanksgiving. I, I think I mentioned this before. I, I was just moved by this the other day. I was over here in the staff kitchen, and it was a beautiful day outside, and I opened the window, and I had there a, a, a cup of coffee that I had just made, and it was early in the morning, and I was about to go start my work, and I had my clothes on, and I had just taken a shower, and I had just come from home and had breakfast, and there I was with my coffee with the window open and staring out at the, the beautiful uh, tree that we've got out here, and the grass, and the, it's a beautiful morning, and the birds are singing. I'm just like, and I've got, I'm like, this is incredibly, incredibly luxurious right now. This is incredibly luxurious. I'm here enjoying this coffee, beautiful setting, just came from my house here at work with, with a decent set of clothes on. Wow, this is, this is very luxurious. This is God's common grace. This is deserving of all kinds of thanksgiving. And yet I think a lot of us just kind of make our way through the day with all these little blessings along the way, and we don't, we don't thank God. I read another quote this week that one of the ways that we 
fight idolatry is by being regularly thankful for everything that God gives us in our life. One of the, the ways we, we cut idolatry at its root is by thanking the one true God for the blessings that we enjoy, coffee included. So why com- what is common grace? God's blessings that are not part of salvation, they're distinct from saving grace, and then why common grace? Because we don't deserve any good thing. Any questions about those two concepts before we start uh, looking at biblical texts that teach this very thing? Okay. Categories of common grace. Categories of common grace. So here are some specific categories. We're going to look at these biblical texts here. Before we do, I want to place them within two larger categories, maybe three larger categories. Maybe three, two, three. Well, maybe just two. Uh, Kind of broadly speaking, God blesses his human creatures in the physical realm and in the intellectual realm. And you probably also say the moral realm if you wanted to. As we'll see in a moment here, you could categorize that under the part where it says unregenerate people do good, but we'll see that. We'll go there in a moment. But in the physical realm, let's turn over to Genesis 39, verse 5. Genesis 39, verse 5. Along with providing for their needs, God often blesses those who reject him with material prosperity. For example, Potiphar's house was blessed for Joseph's sake, granting him prosperity in both his home and his livelihood. 39.5, verse 1, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down, who brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in the sight, his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and he put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer of his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. It's just You just imagine what that, what does that mean in house and field? Well, the, 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 everything that was being produced outside in the field in terms of crops, that was abundant, and the, the house was probably peaceful and harmony among, among the servants. There was probably great wealth and uh, food to eat and wine to drink and clothing and so on. There was a great blessing upon Potiphar during this time of Joseph's stay there. Uh, Psalm 149.16 is a, is a great one in terms of talking about and affirming the doctrine of common grace. 149, verse 16, it's just a short little verse, or probably verse 6, it shouldn't be 16. Nope, it's not that one either. Um, I wonder if it's 45, might be. I think I wrote it down wrong. Um, so hold that there, because we are going to go back to the Psalms. Hold that there and go over to Matthew chapter 5. Just go over to Matthew chapter 5. We'll go back to the Psalms because we definitely have to look at several Psalms in this regard. So let's skip over to Matthew 5 and maybe that'll jog my memory as to what verse I meant to, uh, to have us look at. Matthew chapter 5. And a really important verse, or passage rather, 
for this doctrine of common grace. In the physical realm, God blesses his image bearers. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, so that you may be like your Father who is in heaven. What is he like? For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. There it is right there. So the commandment from Christ is for us to love our enemies and to do good to those who are our enemies. Because in doing that, you're actually reflecting the very nature and character of your Heavenly Father who blesses and does good to His enemies. The people who raise up their fist against God, who rage against God, actually enjoy many blessings from God. And Jesus says, you're to be like that as well. People who are your enemies, who raise their fist against you, who rage against you, you're to actually bless them and do good to them. That actually demonstrates that, that you have special grace operating in your life because if you just do good to those who do good to you, you're just like the unbeliever because they do that. right? So we're to reflect our Heavenly Father by doing good to those who are our enemies and that reflects the very nature and character of our God who does that very thing. What does he do? He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. What does the sunrise bring? It brings a new day. It brings uh, the growth of crops. It brings the ability to work. It brings, basically the point here is that when the, with the sunrise comes every good thing. And God makes the sun rise on you who are in Christ and who are declared righteous and who are right with God and who you are the object of God's love. And guess what? The people that you are at, at work or at school that don't know the Lord Jesus, they experience that same sunrise that you do and those same blessings that you do in this life. Food, clothing, relationship, work, income, and so on. They enjoy it just like you do. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So if you're evil, if you're good, if you're unbeliever, if you're a believer, you enjoy the rain and all the good things that the rain brings. God is pouring out his blessing on both his children and upon his enemies. So this is an important foundational text for the doctrine of common grace, is God blessing his uh, image bearers in the physical realm. Acts 14, Acts chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. Paul and Barnabas are preaching in Lystra, and they think they are the gods Zeus and Hermes who have come down, and they're trying to uh, worship them, and Paul's can't, Paul can't believe it, and he's saying, men, why are you doing these things, verse 15? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Who is this living God? Well, he's the God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Okay? This is the God to whom you are to turn and not these vain uh, gods that you have once worshipped who are no gods at all, really, and who are rather pathetic and very manlike and fickle. The living God is the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In verse 16, In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. What witness? For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
There's a certain kind of satisfaction that we have through food and joy and work and various kinds of creation, earthly pleasures that God has poured out upon image bearers, all creatures, his, all of his creatures, so that it might witness to his goodness and actually by, might be a means to converting people to Christ as they see the goodness of God in the world and see the goodness of God in Christ. He has not left himself without a witness. What is that witness? The goodness that he pours out upon all people. In fact, I have, um, I've been working on a book for a long time. Um, I don't know when it's going to come out. I don't know if it ever will, maybe when I'm in my 50s. But um, the title of it, it's, it, I want to do a, a, write a book on common grace. I've got, I'm about maybe 20,000 words into it, maybe more, I can't remember. But I called it, the title is Goodness Everywhere. The Doctrine of Common Grace. So the subtitle is The Doctrine of Common Grace. The, the main title is Goodness Everywhere. And I hope you are starting to see why I would title it like that. Because truly, the Doctrine of Common Grace is a celebration of God's goodness everywhere. And it's meant to be a means of converting people to Christ. They see the goodness of God in creation. They see the goodness of God in Christ. It all fits together. And they, they turn from their sins and they turn to a living God. They turn to that, that vanity of idolatry and they turn to the living God. Because truly there is goodness everywhere. Yes, we live in a fallen world and there are horrors in this world. Absolute horrors in this world. Death and destruction and mayhem and murder and corruption. Yes. But there are also many good things that our good God pours out on this creation. And He does so to all people regardless of their spiritual status. So this is God blessing His creatures in the physical realm, okay? This little broad category of common grace. The one that really relates to what we are talking about when we're talking about Christianity in psychology, and the one that gets brought up, is God's blessing in the intellectual realm, okay? And this is, this is the case. God does bless, I think, His creatures in the intellectual realm with common grace, because man is made in the image of God, and we are recipients of God's revelation in creation. Remember what we said about God's revelation in creation? His general revelation or His universal revelation? His revelation of Himself that is, uh, that is to all people at all times and all places under all circumstances. That's God's general revelation. And because we're made in His image... Regardless of our spiritual state, we can recognize what is good and true. We can, we can discern between truth and error. Uh, we can implement laws and governing policies that protect the innocent, uphold justice, and promote the general welfare of society. Now, how can that possibly be when we know that at our core, we are sinful by nature? Well, it must be by God's divine, common grace that he would so endow us with a moral sense and a, and a sense of right and wrong and the ability to know true things and good things that we are able to, in some measure, to promote those good things in society, to know things about the way the world works in such a way that we can create technologies and and, and so on, and we can understand the world in such a way that we can build structures that benefit society. And Well, how could that all be? Well, it has to be according to God's common grace and the blessing that He provides His people in the intellectual realm. 
God has endowed his creatures with intellectual gifts for the benefit of the greater society. And we could just talk for a very long time about those intellectual gifts in all areas of study, mathematics, science, medicine, and so on. Right? We, could just, we could spend the rest of the time just cataloging all the ways that God has poured out his blessing upon humankind so that they, we can excel in these areas and provide us, God has provided us with these intellectual gifts through common grace. Okay. Each of these blessings are granted by God, two God's creatures through the exercise of their intellectual gifts. So, in God's common grace, He has gifted all people in some way, believers or unbelievers, some with remarkable intellectual gifts, so that through His providence, they can bless the greater society. Okay? This is how God operates in His providence. Wayne Grudem uh, writes this. He says, quote, This common grace in the intellectual realm is also results in an ability to grasp truth and distinguish it from error, and to experience growth and knowledge that can be used in the investigation of the universe and in the task of subduing the earth. This means, now listen carefully, and I'll see what you think about this sentence. This means that all science and technology carried out by non-Christians is a result of common grace, allowing them to make incredible discoveries and inventions, to develop the earth's resources into many material goods, to produce and to distribute those resources, and to have skill in their productive work. Okay, so he's talking about blessing of common grace in the intellectual realm. What do you think about this sentence? It means that all science and technology carried out by non-Christians is a result of common grace. Go ahead. I agree. Right, and you could even say the refinement of the ability to abort a child is due to the ability to, of, that we have to continually provide greater and greater and better technologies to accomplish a particular task, and yet there you have it. You have it to, it's actually enabling us to better and better, more efficiently commit murder, right? So I, I, I do not think that's, a, that's an accurate sentence. Just that very, everything else is great. That sentence I don't think is accurate uh, because we must first define what we mean by science and establish some ethical criteria to determine the goodness of such technology. Okay? And this is where only Christians, so everybody enjoys common grace, but only Christians are the ones who can appreciate it and discern what is truly beneficial and truly grace from God. Only Christians can because only Christians are yielded to the authority of God's word. I think it is better to refer to true science and then, quote, legitimate and beneficial technology when discussing common grace. So just that blanket statement that Wayne Grudem makes is, I think, not helpful. No, not all science and technology carried out by non-Christians is a result of common grace. Now, that was from his 1994 version of his systematic theology. Maybe he's got it right now that he just released a new version. But I think that was uh, an unhelpful sentence. However, the points that God's common grace allows people to make incredible discoveries and inventions to develop the earth's resources and to make many material goods to produce and distribute those resources and to have skill in their productive work. That's all right. I believe he's, he's right there when he's speaking of God's common grace in the intellectual realm. Is it fair to say that what he's referring to here is not the intention of 
us, God has allowed some grace in their intellectual capacity and their ability to see the world, etc. Um, but and it actually highlights more of the wickedness of man that they would take common grace and turn it. Sure. Yeah. And I think I think that's a good point. And I and I, he probably would say that that's exactly what he's saying. Uh, I think there. Nevertheless, I do think there needs to be some qualification there so that you're so that you're helping Christians recognize that when you're looking out across across the world and you're discerning what is truly God's common grace we're talking about that which is truly beneficial to people and so yeah it's a good point I mean he is probably saying that and it's probably what he intends to say and it does highlight the wickedness of man when we can use those great intellectual gifts for wicked ends. But even then, uh, there are unbelievers who have used science and technology to even then make good and profitable and beneficial things for society. So I just think there needs to be a little more qualification there. Okay. So the intellectual realm is what really relates to this issue of psychology and Christianity, right? Because then the question is, on the back here, how do integrationists appeal to common grace to defend their methodology? That's, that's really what we're after. They're after this kind of intellectual gifting that God has given his creatures. Before we get there, though, I do want to go through the rest of these categories of common grace, just so that you have a broad, un- un- broad understanding of what we're talking about here. This is a really important doctrine, and I was having some interaction with a friend of mine on Twitter a couple days ago, and uh, I had written something about common grace, and he responded to it, and then I responded to him saying that, yeah, common grace, and what he, how he responded was exactly right in what I was trying to say, and I said, yeah, in- common grace is an incredibly freeing doctrine. Because it frees us now as Christians to recognize that the unbeliever can and does often do what we would say good things. Because we're not assessing their motives or their heart with God. All we're assessing is the external activity itself and the external work that they did. And in that sense that the unbeliever is able to do many good things. And and the reason why we're able to say that is because... God has given common grace to uh, all people. And so in that sense, we can actually thank God for, we have now a framework to thank God for and to be edified even the good that unbelievers do. And I think, as I've talked to Christians, there is often some cognitive dissonance at this point. They were like, I know, that we're, I know that total depravity is true. I know that the unbeliever cannot please God, Romans 8. How is it then that we can say that they do any good at all? And common grace helps us to better understand the world in which we live. It is right and fine to say that, that the unbeliever can do good if you're understanding good based on its mere external assessment and not their, their heart towards God or whether or not that work is ultimately redemptive which it's not, or that it ultimately pleased God, which it can't. But in terms of uh, a relative goodness, as we live here in the world and as these things can benefit society, yes, we can say that there is good that the unbeliever can do. So I, I just want to emphasize that 
this doctrine of common grace is an important one, and it frees us to be regularly, just constantly thankful to God. It just every single moment should be a word of thanks to God for what He has done uh, for our benefit and for the benefit of the world. Whether He is using believers or unbelievers to accomplish His task, and by and large, He's using unbelievers to accomplish a lot of these common grace blessings. Let's just be honest, right? So we need to, we need to embrace this, this truth, I think, for the sake of our own worship and the sake for, our, uh, for the sake of our own cognitive rest or clarity. Categories of common grace, kind of now fitting within these two larger realms. God restrains sin. Uh, Genesis 20, verse 6, God kept the Pharaoh, I believe it's Pharaoh, from violating Abraham's wife. He kept him from doing it. Was it the Pharaoh in this case, or was it um, Abimelech, sorry, Abimelech. Um, Chapter 20, verse 1, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev and lived between Kedesh and Shur, and he uh, sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to, of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. I love that. You're a dead man. Because of the woman you are, have taken, for she is a man's wife indicating that there is a sense among all people that adultery is wrong. All that God had to say is that she's another man's wife. Whoa, right? And that would have provoked and pricked his conscience because it's built into us to know that adultery is wrong. Um, Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore I did not let you touch her. I mean, that is a very direct action of God. For those of us who have a hard time believing in God's meticulous sovereignty. Here's a situation where he, not the so-called free will of so-called libertarian free will of Abimelech, God persuaded and kept him from sinning against him, sinning against Abraham and sinning against God. It was God who restrained the sin very directly. And so he does this directly, does it indirectly as well. He restrains it. You could even look at Romans 13. God restrains sin how? How would Romans 13 tell us that God restrains sin? Government. That's right. That is one of the primary ways God restrains sin, by establishing governments that praise people for good and strike down evil by the power of the sword, by a policing power, by a coercive power. The sword means the ability to punish, even punish to the point of capital punishment. They, that's, Romans 13 says that's why God has given the sword to the government, to the governing authorities. Why? To restrain evil. 
so that we can live, generally speaking, in a stable society. You don't want anarchy. That's not good for anybody. You need a government that will impose punishments for violating what is good. Now the question is, who gets to define what is good? Not the government, ultimately. It's God, right? That God defines what is good conduct and what is bad conduct. But nevertheless, inasmuch as the government is upholding what is good and punishing what is evil, they are a blessing of common grace because they're restraining evil in order for us to function in society, in, in some sort of stability, upholding laws, punishing theft, punishing murder, and so on. So God restrains sin. Uh, he does it, he can do it very directly, like in the case of Abimelech, or he can do it through the government, which is often his means. 2 Kings 19, 27 through 28, that's a misprint there, so you might want to write that down. We're not going to look at it, but 2 Kings 19, 27 through 28. Uh, God restrains his wrath, so he doesn't pour out death and judgment when in fact he should. We'd already looked at a text that indicated that. Roman, or Acts 17.30 is another one. Acts 17.30, when Paul is preaching in the Areopagus, preaching to the philosophers, and he makes this comment about how God has dealt with humankind. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, referring to basically all of human history. <laughs> okay, So he has allowed humans from Adam's fall onward to, by and large, uh, enjoy the blessings of life, to live in nations, to have some stability, to enjoy the blessings of relationship and family and so on even though most of the world, except for a very small fraction of it, the most of the world was set against the one true and living God and was worshiping idols rather than worshiping God. And it says that he overlooked that. He allowed them to go about their business in utter rejection of the one true and living God and yet enjoy the creation in many places. He overlooked it. The times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay, so now this is the call of the gospel. But the point of that first part of the verse is that God restrains his judgment. He had every right to wipe out every idolater in every part of the world because of our sin, and yet he withholds his wrath. Romans 3.25 says something very similar. To the point of saying, now God has to display his justice because in doing that and overlooking past sin and judgment where he should have laid down judgment and then even going so far as to forgive that sin, like in the case of his people in Israel, particularly David and others, the question is, is God a righteous God then? Because he's just kind of winking at sin and being like, ah, it's okay. Kind of like the indulgent grand grandfather just lets the grandchild run amok. Right? Like, yeah, it's, it's fine. <laughs> right? No, no, it's not at all. He, he punishes his son in the place of sinners so that when he forgives sinners, he is fully righteous to do so. But nevertheless, during that time when he should have, or, or rather had every right to uh, pour out judgment upon a sinner, he with restrained his 
wrath. So God restrains sin, he restrains his wrath. He gives temporal blessings to all. So this is where we go back to the Psalms. Psalm 65. Uh, it says 5 through 13, that's probably right. 65 verses 5 through 13. Actually, probably 9 through 13 is a little more accurate. <clears throat> it says, You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grains, for so you have prepared it. You're, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. And they shout and sing together for joy. Uh, Psalm 104, he takes this out even more broadly, talking about uh, the blessings that God gives his entire creation. One could argue, well, but that Psalm 65 seems like it's more like in Israel. Is that more kind of that redemptive blessing that, that God gave just his people? No. Uh, Psalm 104 talks about the blessing that God gives all of his people, all of his creatures, you could say. Verse 14, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. God's doing that everywhere. He gives temporal blessings to all. And those are, you can look at those other texts, but I just wanted you to see these important ones. Um, unregenerate people do good. Unregenerate people do good. And again, if this is a hard category for you to embrace, just remember we're talking about assessing these good things uh, from their externals, not from the, the motivation. We don't need to worry about the heart and motivation of the unbeliever. Okay? You don't need to ponder over, over that. We know, we know what Scripture says about that, but we can say that they... Nevertheless, can do good. Second Kings is a good example of this. A, an unregenerate king who was uh, rebellious in some regards, but also was able by common grace to do some good things. Verse 28, Second Kings 10.28, Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan, and the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. So here you have a king who is not, I would say, converted, but nevertheless did good things in Israel that God approved of. But nevertheless, by, his, by the way he responded to the, the law of God as a whole, you can see that he was not in right standing with God. But nevertheless, God praises him for doing some good things in Israel. Regardless of where his heart was at, wiping out Baal was a good thing. Right? Externally, we can look at that situation and be like, there's no more Baals in Israel. Yes! Now, Jehu, I don't know about what's going on in his heart, but I can say, that's awesome. Praise God for that. Right? And I hope this helps give you categories for even some of our own leaders, right? As wicked as some of them are, uh, they can also accomplish some good things. And we should thank God for them. Thank God for those good things. And pray that they would do more good things and have even more wisdom. 
Uh, okay, related to what we were talking about in terms of Christianity and psychology, unregenerate people know truth. Unregenerate people know truth. It's Believers have been given the Spirit now opening our eyes to, to the truth, but uh, unregenerate people can know truth about, about the world. Isaiah 28, I've been reading a book on... Who in here, did anybody in here get uh, Tony Reinke's book on Christ, uh, technology? I gave it away. Anybody, was anybody in here the recipient of that book? I feel like it might have been Dana Lay or Kai. I can't remember. But anyways, I've been reading that, and he pointed uh, me to this verse here. This is an interesting verse. Um, his point is that God is the one who teaches the farmer how to do his work. Ultimately, it's God who teaches through his creation. He's established his creation in such a way, the creation works in such a way, and, and through that, the, the farmer, as an example, or the, the technologist, learns how the world works, how it functions, some truth about it, and is able, therefore, to make things work in such a way that benefits himself and society. Give ear and hear my voice, give attention and hear my speech. This is verse 23. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? The, the, the implied answer is no, because that would be bad for it. He's learned not to plow continually. When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and emmer in, as its border? Why does he do those things? There's a certain way to do farming, folks. A certain way of planting. Now, I don't know that way because I've killed everything I've tried to plant. And, and so I, I obviously don't know how to do it because uh, we've tried these things. Amy grew some sunflowers. That was legit. Uh, anything I try, any plant, I mean, just... Uh, but how does this farmer know how to do this? Verse 26, for he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Whoa. How does he teach him? I, I think it's through the creation, right? Learning how things work. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheeled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. That would be foolish. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Ultimately, when you learn something about the creation in order to draw out that creation for the benefit of God's image bearers, you learn that from God, ultimately. He is the one who gives wisdom and knowledge and counsel. Uh, so that's an important text in this regard. Romans 1.20 says that all people everywhere at all times and all, under all circumstances know that God exists. Matthew 23, 3-4, the unregenerate religious leaders in Israel still understood the Word of God enough to where they could teach it accurately. And Jesus says, when they teach it accurately, you're, you need to obey it. But don't do it according to their deeds, because they teach it well, but they don't practice. And then Romans 2, 17 and following says a similar kind of thing. And then finally, we talked about this uh, several months ago and on a Thursday night. Unregenerate people experience the blessings of the Holy Spirit in some measure. So, then the question is, turning over now as we close out, we'll mention this and then we'll see if you have any questions. How do integrationists appeal to common grace to defend their methodology? Okay, remember what we're talking about. 
we had the four integrationist models up here on the board. We had biblical counseling out he down here as the model that distinguishes itself by saying that the scriptures are sufficient for the counseling task. What do you need? What's necessary for Christians to effectively counsel other Christians? Biblical counseling model would say the scriptures are sufficient. The integrationists would say no. Uh, psychology, due to common grace, is necessary for the counseling task. You cannot counsel people effectively, believers included, without integrating secular, the, the insights of psychology into your counseling model. And they would appeal to common grace. Integrationists appeal to common grace by noting that God has given intellectual gifts, there it is, to unbelievers so that they can, in some measure, understand the world in which they live. These intellectual gifts can produce true observations about human behavior. These true insights, therefore, are gifts of common, God's common grace and therefore should be gladly received and used by, in the counseling endeavor. They also claim that if biblical counselors truly believe in common grace, they will make use of these insights. So not only is it necessary, but the claim is, is that you tr if you truly believe in common grace, that you would be an integrationist. Okay. So how do we respond? Oh, we've got five minutes. How do we respond to that? Well, just come back in six weeks now. Um, so for those of you who don't know, I will be going on a six-week sabbatical. So uh, Austin will be teaching this class for four weeks. Going to be doing a really cool thing on the book of Ruth. And then you'll have... Adam Albright, Stephen Salinas, and Brian Lee. So you guys are really in for a treat. So I encourage you to be here on time, uh, respect the, the teacher for that day, be here on time, and you'll be blessed, okay? So we'll have to review all this when I get back. But for the time being, um, how do we respond? Well, we need to respond by saying, first of all, we fully acknowledge common grace. I, I hope it was clear of how we acknowledge common grace. I mean, um, I certainly embrace that God has blessed the creation with innumerable gifts to be enjoyed. But we also have to recognize that, as I said from the beginning, this study of psychology, or the study of the what? The psyche. What is it? The soul, right? That's what the word means. Greek, Greek word it means soul. The study of the soul, it's not like the study of Meteorology, okay, in that sense, as an example. We're talking about the study of the big questions of life. Who we are, what our purpose is, what's wrong with us, what our motivation should be, how our hearts should be changed, and so on, okay? That's why this issue of psychology relating to the sufficiency of Scripture is so important because psychology intersects at just about every single point with what Scripture is talking about. And we have to take into account the noetic effects of the fall. The noetic effects of the fall, what does that mean? It means the fall's effect on our minds and abilities, ability to think. Uh, due to our sinful natures, our minds no longer interpret accurately what we see in the world. In an unregenerate state, our minds tend towards error when it 
when it comes to these specific issues. It tends towards error. Actually, it's bent on error is probably a better way to say it. When it comes to understanding the larger overarching questions of life, this is precisely what psychology is all about. And yet this is precisely the place where we are most liable to error. Do you see what I'm saying? The overarching questions of life, like God, our purpose, our spiritual state, the reasons why things are the way they are, our motivations, etc. Quoting Heath Lambert now, this is just an excellent quote. I'm going to quote it at large. We'll stop there and we'll pick up in a few weeks. Quote, as far as this truth relates to counseling, we can say that the doctrine of common grace teaches that the findings of secular psychology will often be accurate. But that assertion must be balanced with the Christian understanding of the doctrine of the noetic effects of sin, that our thinking is corrupted, and it is corrupted most seriously on the issues of human existence that secular therapy seeks to address. That's why this is such a hot-button topic, because we're talking about jurisdiction. We're talking about territory encroachment. We're talking about what is the rightful territory of Scripture and of Christianity and whether or not psychology is encroaching on that, right, from a, uh, a wrong worldview, wrong viewpoint. This requires Christians to evaluate secular psychology very carefully. As with all unbelievers in any discipline, God's common grace allows for them to know true things. Totally affirm that. And yet secular therapy, unlike meteorology, for example, there's the example, addresses matters uniquely related to the center of human existence, who we are, what is wrong with us, what needs to happen in order to change, where the noetic effects of sin are most prominent. Okay? I, I, that's what I want us to grasp as, as, I'm, as I'm leaving for the sabbatical. That the reason why this is such an important topic is because the very issues that secular psychology is addressing are the issues where the noetic effects of sin will have the most impact. That's why we press so hard on the issue of the sufficiency of Scripture. And so I gave you this little chart here that I hope provides a little visual clarity. Oh, these are my notes. Yeah, go ahead and look at that on the back there. Um, thank you. When it comes to the observations of a, someone's symptoms and their behavior, it is often the case that common grace allows both the Christian and the non-Christian to see a lot of the same things. Now, we said earlier, even that what we see will be um, shaped in some measure by our pre-commitments. But nevertheless, there is a lot in which these, the area of um, observation will be uh, relatively agreed upon because of God's common grace. Once you get to the point of diagnosis and intervention, these two areas of interpreting the symptoms and then making an application of the remedy, that is when you start now taking the observations of the symptoms and behavior and understanding them within the larger worldview and the larger convictions that you have about your purpose in the world and whether or not God exists and what's wrong with us and, and how to change and so on. And so it's why we press so hard on this issue of the sufficiency of Scripture and the need for uh, the regenerate mind to use Scripture in the counseling process because you are far more liable to err as you move down this process. Okay. Questions? David. So um, do you think that integrationists um, 
would say things that psychology and worldly wisdom is necessary. Yeah. That they don't not only don't believe in the sufficiency of scripture, but they also would not be able to believe that scripture is inerrant or supreme if you're an inspiration of me. They just push people to wisdom on the same level as So just to 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 judge folks at face value, like a Stanton Jones and some in other integration, like an Eric, let's just say Eric Johnson, because I really have a lot of respect for Eric Johnson, though I disagree with him at this level. Um, he would say very clearly that the scripture is inerrant, that it's authoritative, but that we need to use, so uh, he's working hard to affirm the inerrancy of scripture. Stanton Jones says very clearly, scripture is not sufficient for counseling, you need these other things. But he also speaks very highly of scripture. And teaching at Wheaton, at least at the time, he would have had to affirm, I believe, inerrancy. So uh, I think there are, there are probably a good number of integrationists who probably won't as heartily affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, but a number of them that I have read do affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. I think the question is, is, is it a de facto undermining of inerrancy if, in fact, you are an integrationist? And that's another conversation to have all together, but it's a good, kind of a good point. Um, but at least how they talk, they would affirm, a number of them would affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. Not all of them. And that's where you start to see them kind of massage their definitions a little bit, but so, but it's, it's, a, it's a good point. Yeah, it's a good question. I think probably if we were to narrow it down, it would be um, the, the, place is, the place of concern is the, is the authority of Scripture. What authority does it have and where? That's where the disagreement really is. Yeah. Territorial encroachment, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Sure. I think, it's, I think it's the same way you discern kind of any kind of role model. I think we're able to, because of God's common grace, able to discern specific things. This is the freedom of the Christian faith. I can discern specific things about Kobe Bryant and about his life that are admirable that I can learn from. His work ethic. It was unsurpassed, right? Um, his actual skill, excellent, right? His morality, atrocious. Um, what he thought about um, certain, how, how one should use their money. Um, I would never point a Christian towards, you know, to Kobe Bryant. So there, but there are certain things that I can point out and be like, there are certain elements that you can say, 
recognize as good. And I mean, Paul says to dwell on what is good and right and beautiful and, and so on. Uh, Philippians 4, 8, that's, that's the freedom of the Christian. I don't have to embrace all of Kobe Bryant to say that there are a few elements that I can be thankful for and recognize and acknowledge that are admirable. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes with any, any person, um, even other Christians. So first and foremost, I mean, I think Christians should be looking to other believers as their primary role models, right? And particularly in the local church, right? Not on the television screen or Netflix or ESPN. But even then, you have to be careful that you're, that you're not putting someone too high on a, on a pedestal either because they are still a sinner and they're still fallen and they have foibles, right? So, and they will disappoint you. I will disappoint you. And so we need to even be careful that we recognize the good things in each other and, and show grace, but that doesn't mean that we therefore also approve of the sin and the foibles either. Um, but I do think that within the, the, within the Christian faith, within the church, when you have, for example, leaders who are, who are qualified for their, their role that they're playing, that by and large, you're not going to have to be doing some sort of hard work of discerning, like, is this good, is this bad? But by and large, you're going to see, be confident that you have a, a good example or a good role model uh, from them and from others in the church. But yeah, still a level of discernment. Um, so that's a good question. All right. Well, let me pray for you, and then we will go and uh, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, study of your word. We thank you for the doctrine of common grace. Help us to understand it better. Help us to see it and to be more thankful to you. Just constant thankfulness to the living God who is the source of every good thing. Um, whether large or small. So I pray that we would be thankful people as a result of this. Our worship would increase, our joy would increase. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.